Hi, my name is Corey Clark, and I am the director of the Adversarial Collaboration Project at University of Pennsylvania. Um, and oh, I usually say welcome to Cyphlopod. I should say Cyphlopod slash antisocial psychologist as we're rebranding. <laughs> 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 uh, this is my co-host, wherever you are. Antisocial psychologist is such a good, is such a good name. <laughs> it is, I agree. I, I hear I'm that you and I had like the advocate. same idea at the same time. Yeah, you basically <laughs> so I'm beat sorry. me to the name. I know, right. I, just I barely, gonna, just barely. I, I think I was going to name my Substack Antisocial Society. It's like, ah, I mean, I probably still could, but I'm not going to. So. I think I have a Substack called Antisocial Psychologist, but I've never used it. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't, still I haven't used grabs. mine yet either. Yeah, yeah, I'm still, still setting it up, so. Okay, well, this is Bo. Am I supposed to introduce myself? You can, you can get a word in if you want. Okay. I'm, I'm a independent scholar in an undisclosed location in Lewis, <laughs> Delaware. Uh, great. Lewis, and Delaware this is, our... is beautiful. What a, what that nice. is, it's really nice there. I mean, you've got the beach and the park and the town and uh, just, you know. The you town is so cute. Don't yeah, tell anyone. Yeah, we don't yeah. want people going there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know, uh, Go to Rehoboth Beach. <laughs> I know, right, right. Yeah, well, that whole, you know, the whole Delaware Shore Strip is great. It really is great. Pretty nice. Anyway. Um, so, um, this I'm is Lee our, our guest host. Yeah, yeah Lee Jessam, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. a.k.a. Rabble Rouser, uh, <laughs> professor of psychology at Rutgers University, and the brand new editor-in-chief of the Journal of Open Inquiry and Behavioral Science. Um, yes, today we're going to be discussing the potential problems with peer review and potential alternatives. Um, so I don't know who wants to get us started, but maybe like, does anyone want to get into what is sort of like the biggest, I guess maybe just a quick well, introduction. What, are the, what is the purpose of what it? What is peer review? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe people don't know what peer review is. Um, do you want me to say? What is peer review? <laughs> like, it's really kind yeah. of an interesting question. I mean, you could describe it empirically, like what happens. So what happens is, you know, in all these scientific and social scientific and probably humanities journals, like what do I know? Uh, <laughs> scholars write some paper and they send it to a journal, a peer reviewed journal. And what that means is there's like an editor who handles it and sends it out to experts, supposed, supposed experts in the field who critique the paper and then they communally make a judgment as to whether the paper should be published in that journal. That describes empirically how it works. Right, and so the idea behind this is that other experts are the only people who are qualified to judge one's work and therefore we should give the work to other experts who decide if it makes it through the sort of gauntlet and into the published record of science. And I think the other, the other part of it uh, is that the idea of having two or three or four is that hopefully you cancel out any like biases of a particular scientist who might not like the paper for whatever reason and then the editor at least has a few perspectives on which to base their right their so to give the listener a sort of idea of this you would send this off as lee says an editor would look at it editors can reject your articles and that's called a desk reject which everybody hates <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I like it. So long as it happens like immediately. True. So that <laughs> Don't make quickly. me wait three months for a desk rejection, right. which has happened and, to me before. And then if the editor decides it, it's sort of across a, a minimum threshold, the editor then sends it to say two through maybe four or five supposed experts in the field who then read it, criticize it, write their opinions and give it back to the editor. And then the editor ultimately makes a decision. So hypothetically, one could have an article that is despised by four peer reviewers and the edi editor could say, I really like this and I'm going with it anyway. But in practice, editors generally defer to yeah. the reviews. Now, one yeah, thing that I almost I would never see an editor go over like, the top as it were. Yeah. One, one thing I would say right now, and we can talk about this when he gets into ridiculing and denigrating <laughs> the peer review system. <laughs> one, one big problem that already introduces itself right here is that the editor gets to decide who reviews the paper. So now you can just think to yourself, if you're the editor and you get a paper and you don't want it to make it in your journal, but you realize that it's pretty high quality, you can send it to people whom you suspect will dislike that paper or who you dis suspect will dislike that paper. And similarly, if you like the paper, you can send it to people who you know are going to be favorable toward it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also I've discovered there's like a little bit more nepotism happening than I used to think like six years ago where editors are publishing their friends' paper and sending their yes. friends' papers to their friends' papers. Right. And, there's a little, I'm not in the group of people gaming the system because I'm not like high status and connected enough, but I'm learning that that happens. Um, well, this is that, There's, there's evidence for that. I'd, I'd have to track it down. There's evidence for that both in econ and law. And, and um, did you say law? Yeah, yeah. yeah law okay. journals. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But in, in, if I remember correctly, it was like the, the walk down the hall effect. I, I think it, I think it was econ. If they had a colleague in the same department, they were just much more likely to get the thing published, you know, and an editor mm. handling it. So, or even, but it wasn't really clear whether that editor necessarily handled it. Like, there, there's that. a reason that um, at academic conferences, the editors of the most prestigious journals are feeded and lionized by people. <laughs> <like>. People <laughs> buying them drinks. Like, Your talk was amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So, so this yeah. is like that. This is not even really the peer reviewers. It's rather the editor who can exercise a lot of control over what gets into the journal, even if it's supposedly through the review system and not through the the editor's uh, discretion, because the editor does decide who gets to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so that builds all sorts of uh, real and potential bias into the entire system, right? right. So whether it's whether it's a political perspective or a theoretical perspective or the tradition in a, in a particular area of research, uh, you know, if the editor is sympathetic, you can kind of stack the system for or against the paper on any of those grounds. Now, we don't, no one knows how often, mm -hmm. at least I don't know of any evidence on how often editors actually do that. And mm -hmm. probably most of the time, mostly they're doing their earnest best to, get honest reviews, I think that's probably true, but you don't need it to be a majority of the time for it to seriously skew a literature. 
Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if it only if this sort of bias, again, whether it's methodological or theoretical or political, only happens 10 or 20 percent of the time, I, that's going to be a substantial end up producing a, a, an overall scientific literature that is skewed for or against whatever the consensus may be, if there's a consensus mm -hmm. um, among editors. I should add, by the way, that journals seem to recognize this problem and they often give people who are submitting their papers an option to recommend an editor. Yeah. So they might have a list of editors, like say 20, and then you can say, hey, I really think Dr. So-and-so would be a great mm -hmm. editor. <laughs> but you, and, yeah, that actually, really, you know, that, that just allows you to game the system, right? I mean, right. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe you're avoiding someone who would be biased against you, but it's, right. you might also be biasing it in favor. That's but, right. You know. I mean, yeah. I'm working on a paper right now that the working title is Defense of Merit. It's kind of, imagine our censorship paper, Corey, only on merit instead of censorship. Mm -hmm. Very similar, cast of thousands, not, not mm. thousands, cast of dozens, trying to get <laughs> lots of people on board, sort of a controversial topic. And we're leaning towards submitting it to PNAS because one of the leaders of the effort like has an in with Pinker, and we're hoping to have Pinker handle it. So I'd love to have Pinker handle this, right? But right. I, I like, you know, really in a perfect system, there would be a reasonably objective neutral editor who would send it out to a diversity of reviewers and make a reasoned judgment based not on the evaluation of the reviews, but on the substance of the reviews. So, right. I mean, this, this absolutely, I mean, I, I was an editor for PSPB years and years ago. And every once in a while, I, you know, I might get two reviews and one was positive and one was negative. And the stuff in the negative review was clearly wrong. It was just wrong. Like you demand, not like matter of opinion, perspective, unjustified. Like they say the, this is the result and the result undermines the argument, but the result didn't show. <laughs> it was, that was not the result. It's like they misread the table or something. So, you know, I, I would almost always give a revised and resubmit or a conditional acceptance on that, unless, you know, unless I had my own reservations. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, and, and I, I personally, on the receiving end, on the submitting end, I always preferred an activist editor to a, you know, count the reviews and just average them in. Mm -hmm. okay, so when, so when I say an activist, an activist editor has a thoughtful set of responses mm -hmm. that are substantive. I may not agree with all of them. I may even think some of them are really bad. But that means I'm now in a discussion with the editor rather right. than just a hand waving, do everything the reviewers tell you. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do I do with that? It's like, no, right. I'm not going to do everything the reviewers tell me. So one thing that's important about this is that reviewers are often anonymous and the person who submitted the paper has no way of contacting the reviewer, whereas mm -hmm. you do have contact with right. an editor. So I've had, and I'm sure you've had as well, experiences in which one of the reviews was just obviously and palpably confused. And I wanted to say, look, let me address it. And the editor just deferred to the reviewer and said, look, I don't want to irritate the reviewer. And that's mm -hmm. obnoxious. And that's why yeah. we might prefer an activist, meaning right. an involved editor who's willing yeah. to make mm -hmm. a decision based on conversations with the, yeah. the person who submitted the paper. My, my sense is that's the minority of editors. I feel like most yeah. editors, like a lot of the time it feels as though they didn't even really fully read the paper. <laughs> and yes. they're just kind of like, they'll be like, 
I won't bother sharing more thoughts because the reviewers did such a wonderful <laughs> job. Please address all of their comments. <laughs> we're, we're noting that review, uh, editors are not well recompensed no. by the journals, so they're no. not exactly motivated. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, I, I understand. But yeah, I, I prefer the more the editor who actually is like, do the reviewers comments make sense? And, right. yeah. Um, yeah. you know, sure. only expects you to address the ones that make sense. But I feel like that's not most editors. Most editors seem to want to please the reviewers and have very yeah. little concern for the author. Yeah. One, one thought or question so i think we'll all agree before we get into that conversation that the peer review process can bias the literature and as you said lee even if you're talking 10 to 20 percent that can have large downstream effects yeah, yeah. an interesting thing here though is that peer review made a lot of sense when you had limited space in literally printed journals. So like I subscribed to the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology or whatever, and I would get a hard copy because there was no such thing as the internet. <laughs> so we have a limited space, especially in the most prestigious journals, the, one, the ones that everybody in the field is sort of advised or expected to have read or at least glanced through. Um, so the peer review process was really important for that. I, I don't think there was an alternative to it, or uh, it's hard to imagine one. But now we have endless space on the internet, and we can just put journals everywhere. It's not like, it's not as if they're running out of You can put like, journals paper. everywhere. Well, you know, <laughs> www.journal, and there's a journal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, it's not as if they the, there's a limited resource, namely paper. <laughs> the limited and, resource and the preprint servers. Yeah, the preprint pre servers. Right. Like yeah, I'll exactly. see papers on preprint service, and like I feel as though I'm qualified to evaluate. This is a high quality paper, and so I want to start citing it immediately. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it ever gets cited, um, or ever gets published, rather. But well, so I guess some journals advise against that. They say not to cite, cite pre unpublished work. Yeah. yeah. Which makes so sense for them, because why would they want to have to compete with unpublished work when they're yeah, right. citations for their own journal? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. Do, <laughs> do, you, do you, Lee, agree with my assertion about peer review uh, prior to the internet? That oh, it, yeah, yeah. It there was, was much more space. understandable? Yeah, I, I think I mostly do agree with that, actually. Uh, you know, I just would add, you know, we're all social psychologists, so... I'm not. I'm an independent scholar, Lee. I know. You're, tra you're, you're trained. You're, you're, an you're an antisocial psychologist. So, although we're all antisocial psychologists here. So, um, uh, so but, but I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect the, the kind, most of the kinds of biases and noise in our review process processes are not the same in the natural sciences. And, and I, I suspect that because they just have usually have more of a reality criteria against which to compare <laughs> what they're doing, right? I mean, if you're making some new chemical, you either have succeeded or right. haven't, and your, right. your colleagues, you know, let's say you say you've succeeded and you haven't, your colleagues are going to figure that out very quickly, you know, if nobody else can synthesize this new compound. Um, whereas we don't really usually have those kind of reality checks. It's like we design these studies 
and you know using various measures and it's like well you know maybe it replicates maybe it doesn't if, if most people don't really do this there's more replications than there used to be but you know somebody will do something similar it'll be a somewhat different measure so if it comes out the same, you can sing the praises, but if it comes out differently, is it a like, different measure? Is it what, what is, is the original thing bogus? Nobody really knows. And really everybody's gotten published and half of them are gonna get grants. And as long as their friends say, this is great stuff, they can continue to get it published. It doesn't really matter. There's no reality check. There's the, what is the, the Philip Dick comment? Reality is what's left over after you stop believing in it. There's no check like that on us. <laughs> so, uh, so, so apparently that quote is a little bit more involved than that sentence, just for the Philip K. Dick fans who are like, that's bullshit that he used that. <laughs> but yeah, so here's an interesting, uh, I keep saying things are interesting, but if I say it, it's interesting almost by definition. So here's a thought. Uh, the... In, if you look at study of bias in the in other disciplines, in the harder sciences, let's call them, a lot of it um, looked at it from a Kuhnian perspective, that is from a Thomas Kuhnian perspective. Thomas Kuhn argued that science progresses through paradigms in which people sort of share underlying assumptions and then at some point there's a dramatic break or a revolution and then you move into another right. paradigm. So some people would argue that's the kind of bias you get in other fields is that the reviewers are working, let's say, within an Einsteinian paradigm. And right. then there's something that challenges that and they're hostile to it because of that. Do you think that there even is a such thing as a paradigm in social psychology? Not in the Cunian sense. Like people will throw that, you know, it was hot to throw that term paradigm around, you know, <laughs> 10, 20 years ago, and it was like every little methodological thing was a paradigm, you know, <laughs> right. you know right, right, right. So, which is just ridiculous. It's just you, it's your methods. That's really, it is. it's not a paradigm, um, not in the Cunian sense anyway. And I don't think we have a paradigm, right? You know, right. we have common methods, we have mid-level theories, we occasionally have an ambitious theory, Usually it fails, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, you know the one the, the one place that I think you yeah. have gotten natural science that you get some of the biases that you see in social psychology is climate science. So yeah, the Earth is getting. I would just say very clearly, uh, you know, I believe the Earth is getting warmer. Humans are contributing it. I think we should do things about it. It may become an emergency really quite soon. So that's not the issue. But, but there is also a track record of if and when ever, almost whenever, someone found something that went against the sort of climate change narrative, they would get, you know, even pre-social media, they would get mobbed and ostracized by their colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this guy, Roger Pilkey, who found like in the 90s or early 2000s, that, um, that whether he did some, I don't know, a couple of studies, you know, climate science is not my area of expertise, but found that weather wasn't becoming more extreme. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember which piece of it, maybe it's there weren't more hurricanes, or there weren't more tornadoes, because I don't remember the details. But the upshot was that there was no evidence that over however many years he looked at it, weather was getting more extreme. 
and he was denounced and ostracized and had trouble finding a position. And I, uh, you know, I mean, it, so you do, you can get the kinds of things that we see in social psychology in, in a natural science if it, you know, if it runs up, uh, up against people's agendas and stuff. Wasn't there like a polar bear example that you told oh. me? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was this woman, I've got, I forget her name, in one of the Canadian schools, um, she had like a courtesy appointment or maybe she was a non-tenure track faculty. Um, and she published a book titled something like The Great Polar Bear Hoax. And you know, again, if you remember 20 years ago, the idea was that the polar ice was all melting and the polar bears were endangered. And, you know, they'd be like, you know, they're very easy to find magazine or social media images of like a lonely bear sitting on a tiny little, you know, iceberg out in the ocean, all for, you know, implicitly. Forlo- that is a cute picture, though. I, I know, right, I know, right. Or right, sad right, yeah. slash cute. <laughs> okay, so, so she, published, she publishes this book saying there's just no evidence that for of declining polar bear populations. So, and then she gets fired, you know, she gets fired. And, and it might have been not all that different than Bo's situation in that, you know, they couldn't say they p- fired her because she published the book. So they would have other reasons. They always have other reasons, you know, right? They're all, you know, the administrators are, know how to play this game. But, so, so I just looked into it. It just like, wasn't that hard. I tracked down um, like the Canadian, like the equivalent of the Canadian Park Service or the Canadian Geographic Service, um, uh, 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 sort of tallying surveys of estimates of polar bear populations, you know, five to 10 years apart, and they were up, <laughs> you know, across that, you know, it was like, I'm, t- I, I'm making up the numbers now. Maybe I found it in 2009 and 2016. It was something like that. And they were, uh, you know, it was like they, there was a range both times and I'm making up the numbers, but it was as if the range the first time was 15 to 25,000 and the range the second time was like 22 to 35,000. So it's actually is hot, you know, they overlap enough that it is conceivable they could have actually been reduced. But the general trajectory was that polar bears were increasing, not decreasing based on, you know, this had nothing to do with the book or the denunciation. In fact, the, the sources were not quite identical, but I, you know, so. So this is for interested listeners. This is um, Susan Crockford's book, the polar yeah. bear. Yeah, the polar bear catastrophe that never happened. Yeah, that's um, yeah. <laughs> the, the so the reason that I bring her that, critics are still hoping it'll happen though. <laughs> I know, right. Please, polar bears. They kill baby seals. They're kind of nasty creatures. Um, but so the reason I I bring up the Cunian paradigm idea is because what some people in the social sciences, especially like say social psychology, the sophisticated people will say, well, look, you get these kinds of biases in all kinds of fields, right? It's just the typical behavior of people protecting a paradigm. There's nothing, mm-hmm. you know, social psychology is not different in this sense. Whereas I think the three of us want to make the claim that it's it's much looser and that there are more political biases. So what would you say to that argument? I would say yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I would like to know what you think. So I think we all have like an intuitive sense that there's political bias. Maybe a lot of that is based on, probably for me, it's based on my own personal experiences and seeing the kinds of comments I get on different kinds of papers. Um, But 
what we, in your view, is the best evidence we have that there is political bias influencing the peer review process in either social psychology or social or psychology or the social sciences more broadly? I actually don't think there is a lot of evidence. This is some, some weak evidence that political bias influences peer review. Um, and I say this because I've done some, you know, pretty counter narrative stuff over the years. I mean, probably most extremely was the stereotype accuracy stuff. Um, and I just never had trouble getting that. I never had any more trouble getting that published than anything else. Sometimes people will get angrier about it. That is absolutely <laughs> true. But, but I just, you know, it's like, I mean, let's say I had three reviews and two were kind of positive and one was like nasty. I, I could usually overcome that, you know? So I don't, you know, there's this old Abramowitz paper that makes it look, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of a weak peer review yeah, type political vibe, but, but it's a yeah. small, you know, it's, it's old paper, mm -hmm. small effect, you know, who the hell knows? I think, um, I think Yol Inbar actually has a more recent paper that there was some evidence of a peer review like effect. Uh, but again, it was small. I just don't. Are you think talking that's about the self, the self-reported where people, where people said they would discriminate against a conservative yeah. paper? No, 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 no. He has a subsequent one. I'd have to track oh. it down. Where they actually really? had people evaluate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they looked at a whole range of biases. So one was this evaluation bias. The other, I forget what they called it, mm -hmm. but it was like, who is foregrounded? Is it if it's the study of liberals and conservatives? Is are conservatives the ones being explained? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I know that one. But that okay, one, yeah. yeah, that was a small effect. And then yeah. also they, I was actually quite surprised. I don't remember the precise effect size, but I believe the effect size of who's portrayed more negatively, conservatives or liberal liberals. It was a very small effect. And to me, yeah. that I'd have to look at his methods because like you could say the whole entire RWA and SDO bodies of research are all just one big massive. RWA. Conservatives are terrible in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I don't you know, know if they included those ones. So. You know, for for non-insiders, the acronym RWA oh, is right-wing yeah. authoritarianism and SDO is social dominance orientation. Now, let me quickly push back against Lee. So Lee's making this claim that actually there's not too much political bias in the peer review process. No, I'm, I think he's saying there isn't much evidence for it. Oh, there's not much evidence for it. Oh, did it. we? Oh, Lee's back yet. He paused for a second. He, my argument demolished him. And to be fake frozen. Like the kid who throws the Monopoly board. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, okay. Yeah, if the claims there's not much evidence, I agree with that. And so you asked this question, Corey, and you said you were going off of personal experience. I'm going off both informed hypotheses and personal experience. <laughs> and the personal experience, obviously, that's not, you know, like, I, I don't expect people to accept that in sort of like the public domain of debate and discourse. But it's very persuasive to me personally, <laughs> you know, at least, <laughs> at least it updates, you know, it, it causes me to shift my prior views. Um, but also just looking at the literature and the way that the literature is disfigured, I think is telling. Now, one one problem, of course, is 
there's such pervasive bias in the field that there are actually few scholars who would want to challenge sort of the right. sacred values of the field and those who mm -hmm. do, and I think this is important, they frame their papers in a way that it appears that they're not. So yeah. maybe they have data that undermine some sacred cow or another, right? But they're like, we don't, let's not put it that way. And in fact, as a graduate right. student, I can tell you my, my advisor intelligently told me, finesse this, you know, like <laughs> make it seem as pro-liberal as possible. So right. that's another problem that it, it's actually difficult to study this issue as carefully right. as we would like to. Yeah, I don't experience that as pushback at all. I think that is exactly right. But that is not bias in peer review. That's bias in all sorts of other places. And right. that, that would be I completely like, agree with. Right. But we would agree that that's like in response to a perception that there's bias in peer review. Like you would give advice to your grad student because you know, or you have reason to believe that they would have a harder time publishing if they didn't make their findings seem. Yeah, that's what I'm asserting is that the fa the the reason we massage the rhetoric and make it pro progressive right. if you will is precisely because we're anticipating getting certain peer reviewers in an, a, a certain editor mm -hmm. so right. in some I sense that's, that's that's the sentinel the guards of the yeah. of the publication right. are distorting it preemptively yes i that I, that process i think is exactly right and so the upshot of that is that the literature will appear to vindicate progressive narratives mm -hmm. right. far more than it actually does because mm -hmm. enough people have massaged their rhetoric. I think that's a great mm -hmm. turn of phrase um, in order to increase their chance of having their work published in a decent journal. Right. And so now the journals are filled with this like pro-progressive pro rhetoric that you know, is going to create the impression to a naive person who reads the article, say like a, mm -hmm. you know, like an honors, you know, somebody doing an honors uh, thesis as a senior or a new graduate student, you know, you come in, you're not exactly a blank slate necessarily, but you're not really familiar with all the sort of, you know, skeletons in all the closets, all the, you know, all, all, the, all the bugs under the rugs, and you <laughs> take it at face value that, you know, when the some paper says X, that X is actually true. It's very hard to not take that as true. And so when all, when, when the papers are consistently skewed in one political direction, it's, it, you know, it's going to make it look like, you know, what is it, the, is it the Colbert comment that reality has a liberal bias? Yeah. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. but, but, and, it, it, what, and the reality that has the liberal bias is the rhetoric of, of social psychologists, not the actual mm -hmm. reality. So. Right. I, I had progressive friends who used to say, we're only as progressive as reality. <laughs> <laughs> so I just saw an article um, that it had the title the the sort of rhetorical question how the republic or like how the republican party became anti-science or how anti-science became a part of the republican party and then they had these polls showing trust in science across you know from let's say 1970 or something and showing that indeed republicans trust science much less than they used to now the interesting thing about this of course is it's framed as 
anti-science, but really a more charitable way of framing this, right, would be Republicans or conservatives are skeptical of the institution, not of the right. actual facts and, right. and like theories, right? right? Yeah. Or you could say yeah. Democrats are credulous toward uh, or you, yeah, you, <laughs> you could say that as well. Um, right? The the reason these like framing things drive me crazy because is because it makes it like really impossible to do any kind of systematic analysis of bias because if you just look at titles or if you just read abstracts or you just look at like the main take home conclusion, um, everything looks kind of progressive, um, and it takes actually carefully looking at the data what did they really find are they telling the whole story in the abstract lee you would probably be familiar with a lot of these kinds of findings some of the best ones are like with the um anti-black implicit bias predicting uh discrimination against black people but it's really a distortion occasionally of the data where the discrimination is happening on the low end of the scale so like yeah. the pro-black uh, or anti-white or however you want to frame it. Yeah, um, so, but all of those studies, you read them and it looks like, wow, like hardcore support right. for the progressives on this one. But right. then when you look at the data, you're like, oh. it's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. are we seeing yeah. that liberals just racially discriminate and conservatives don't? Right. I'm equating. Yes. No, there, there's okay. literally, I mean, there's, there's probably multiple papers, but there's one in particular that really Tetlock was all over. I mean, I have yeah, he was. talks and stuff, but it was really the Tetlock crew, Tetlock and Blanton and Jacquard. I mean, that's Mitchell that, who and, was all, yeah, yeah, it was that whole crew where um, one of the early studies showing predictive validity of the race IET, that is, it predicted racial discrimination, had no evidence of anti black discrimination. So you might, you might ask yourself, well, how can you get predictive validity of the IEP if there's no anti-black discrimination? Because they had plenty of anti-white discrimination. <laughs> so the, the, the variability- On the low end. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's people low on implicit prejudice that is supposedly people who don't have implicit prejudice discriminated against white people. People mm -hmm. high, quote, high on implicit prejudice were egalitarian in their <laughs> treatment of, of, of black and white people. So- right. It's like, you can't make this up. You cannot make this up. And this is actually, by the way, a pattern that is, mm -hmm. uh, that repeats itself over and over because there are a lot of studies in which, like, say they say, well, conservatives evinced an anti-Black bias. And what that actually meant was conservatives treated, like, Blacks and whites similarly and right. liberals favored right. whites. And all you're right. doing is just looking no, liberals at the favored comparison. Right. people. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 so yeah. They, they only focus on Pardon the me. effective ideology and the treatment right. of black right. people, where right. it's the liberals right. treat them especially good compared to white right. people and conservatives right. treat people less differently. And in fact, um, this is- But so... all of these findings are framed as- Right. Uh, That's right. Conservatives are racist and sexist right. and- right. I think this is so ingrained in people today though, that the very idea of anti-white bias sounds like a conservative talking point. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it almost sounds like right. we're a bunch of bitter old white people complaining about <laughs> anti-white bias. But I think the thing is, I don't think anyone actually is complaining about the fact that the bias exists. It's just like, let's at least acknowledge where the right, difference it's occurring. Right. for analytical purposes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, with, with the IAT stuff, there, there were a slew of sort of famous um, IAT predictive validity papers 
that have no evidence of overall anti-black bias in, in, mm -hmm. in behavior, in behavior or in whatever the outcomes would be. And so that turns out to be really interesting. One, it's interesting because if there's no net bias, like what really are we talking about? Yeah, you could be talking about individual differences and, you know, IAT scores predicting more versus less egalitarian treatment based on race. There could be something interesting there. It's not usually framed that way. It's usually framed as, you know, unconscious racism. Um, but it's also interesting for a second reason. Mean for the race IAT, mean, and there's different race IATs. You can do stereotypes, you can do attitudes, lots of different things you can do. So they're not all the same. It's not like it's a single thing. Nonetheless, the mean score from an IAT um, advocate's standpoint are almost always above zero, which, which, which would, by a traditional interpretation, indicate some sort of anti-Black bias an anti-black attitude, an anti-black stereotype. That's what a positive score would mean. Mm -hmm. But, and that would be the mean score, which means most, most people score above zero. This is where in the 90s and early 2000s, Banaji and Greenwald would come up with their 70, 80% of the people are unconscious racist rhetoric. Right. They have like a PBS special or something on that. Or yeah, they have all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's been like a whole thing, right? But, but, but if there's no, if there's a in a study in which there is no net discrimination, if you think about it from a regression standpoint, the mean of the predictor corresponds to the mean of the outcome. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if the mean IAT score, let's just pick something, is 0.5, let's just say that, and the mean behavioral bias is zero, that means 0.5 on the IAT corresponds to egalitarian behavior. And this is why the same, and, and then you can say, you don't need most to do egalitarian the people. Yeah, are, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and so yeah. the, the IAT Central's interpretation of the IT as having a true zero, they have a recent paper that is like kind of bizarrely complicated. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't actually um, assess the external validity of the IT. It's like based on correspondence of IATs with other IATs, they conclude that there's a true zero, which just seems like a really weak basis to me, like a really weak basis for doing it, when almost every study that I know of that has uh, actually treated, treated it seriously as an issue of external validity, what does a score of zero correspond to in some other um, outcome like discrimination? Mm -hmm. um, those there, egalitarianism in, in non-IAT behavior, behavior, evaluation, judgment, is always above zero. It's a, you know, the, the IAT score that corresponds to egalitarianism is almost always above zero, which mm -hmm. means, you know, and, now, and it fluctuates. So there is no true zero. As far as I can tell, the, the, the zero point fluctuates from IAT to IAT, from study to study, from outcome to outcome. And so yeah, anybody who's making claims like 80% of the world is unconscious racist, they're just making crap up. Mm -hmm. At best, they've leapt, you know, they, at best, they have leapt to an unjustified conclusion. At worst, they are making stuff up. And since we are charitable on this podcast, we'll say they've <laughs> leapt to an <laughs> leapt to a conclusion that does not follow. <laughs> um, but to, to, to kind of bring this back to peer review, like how much of this kind of thing is happening 
because of the peer review process. Like, how much do scholars feel like they should frame their findings as pro-liberal for purposes of publishing papers and being successful? Well, and how much of it back. is just just the, what scholars want to see in their own data? I would just step back just for a second, keeping that question, but noting that I don't like the term pro-liberal so much because, and oh. I want to see if Lee would agree with this, do you agree that it's really more, the bias is, it, it, it's at least much more powerful about topics such as race and sex and not liberal per se. So for example, I wouldn't be afraid to talk about having low marginal tax rates or something, something that a conservative <laughs> might, you know, might desire. That wouldn't trigger people in the field the way that talking about, say, sex differences might. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. You, I mean, you, the two of you have written about this um, um, and you talk about it as equalitarianism, um, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of the sort of sacredness of groups deemed protected by the progressive left. And I think that is correct. Okay. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, the one it, it, it's probably it, it is it captures 80, 90 percent of where these problems are really going to be um, powerful. Uh, right. But, you know, climate science is another one, actually. Yeah, and that's it doesn't a good point. Easily, it doesn't easily fit that. So it's that's not true. only that, but it yeah. is, I think, mostly that, actually. I, I think this is... Well, you're, the you're polar right. bears are in a pressed <laughs> minority. The polar boys, they're a protected <laughs> minority. Um, I, I think that's right, and that's important. But the reason that it's important to note this is because sometimes I'll see scholars say, well, there's no real anti-conservative bias. And then they'll talk about something like tax rates or right, um, right. sexuality or something. Yeah, and I think, yeah. yeah, there probably really isn't there. Like, I wouldn't be afraid right. to talk to my colleagues about my views on taxes or something. Right. Whereas I might about my views about affirmative action or right. something related to those issues. So that's why. Now, what was your question, Corey? Could you repeat that? Oh, I was saying like we're talking, I mean, we're, we're talking about like perceived biases in what is, what has been published. Mm -hmm. But, and I agree with you, maybe we shouldn't say pro-liberal, we should say pro, I don't know, uh, particular social justice type issues um, that are progressive. Um, but how much of it has anything to do with bias or perceived bias in peer review? And then scholars purposefully skew their own results. For example, highlighting one particular effect and downplaying another one. So like making the interaction look different than it really is or proposing a like totally implausible causal relationship between correlational variables when there's a far more plausible one that would challenge other, uh, like how much of that is happening because people are trying to publish and peer review is biased and how much of it is just scientists, social scientists themselves see the world through that lens. And so those are the things they notice in their own data. Like it doesn't even occur to them to highlight the fact that, you know, it's people low and right-wing authoritarianism who are treating people more equally well i, I you know I, I think you're you're the second half of what you described is probably most of what's going on i just would not say that's not a bias it's just that you know it's not an intentional bias but it's absolutely a bias in the field where uh if if there were more um non-progressive uh, uh uh social scientists 
it would probably come up as an alternative explanation much earlier that, well, maybe really, you know, is it possible, is it even possible that most of what you have here is anti-white discrimination? Like, I don't think, mm -hmm. my, so I think I'm one of the few academics with like about an equal distribution of people on the left, right, and center following me on Twitter. So mm -hmm. a lot, so relative to most other academics, I have a lot more interactions, I think, with people on the right than, than most of our colleagues, maybe not all, but certainly most. And that's commonly, you know, they'll, they, conservatives are sensitive to anti-white discrimination. Now, maybe they're overly sensitive to it, but, and, but the point is, if there were more in the field, they would be trained in the same methods we are, they would have a PhD, they would be bound by the same rules of evidence that we are, and it still would probably occur to them before it would occur to most of our colleagues that you have anti-male prejudice sometimes, you have anti-white prejudice sometimes. I mean, I, you have anti-rich people prejudice, I, you know. I mean, there is the, the Mark Grant and Jarrett Crawford and all of them have that, you know, the, the ideological conflict hypothesis mm -hmm. has identified uh, uh, pre prejudice and negative attitudes towards all sorts of groups um, on the right um, held by people mm -hmm. on the left. So it, it is possible. It's just that it's, it, it is much less likely. And so it's a much longer slog to get it into the literature if it gets there at all. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, I even, guess it, oh, I was ahead. just going to say, it would be kind of surprising if the latter part of what I said, the scholars themselves see the world and their data that way. Mm -hmm. It would be weird if that happened at that level and then it didn't happen in their evaluations of their peers' work. Right, because since the world is refracted through that ideological prism, when they encounter a paper that challenges that, they think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. But per perhaps more important is not only do they think it's wrong, but they think it's harmful or pernicious, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's the dangerous part in my view, because ideally in the peer review system, a reviewer should be able to think, you know what, I don't agree with this, but it's a good paper and it's thought provoking and therefore right. it should be in the literature. Right. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen <laughs> anyone say that <laughs> actually. Um, but I wonder, like I've thought about like people say, well, one solution is trying to get more balanced reviews and your peer reviewers go to someone who you think is going to be hostile, go to someone who you think is going to be like happy to see those findings. But then you end up with the editor having a ton of power because they basically just have to like pick sides. So it, it, I don't even know if that's a really useful solution to try to get like more balanced peer reviewers. Well, how would you force that upon somebody anyway? Like an editor, how would you force them to yeah. do? I, I mean, would you say- You encourage not, them to do that. But. I would say not forcing them, however, you actually could imagine if all of this were out in the open, like who are the reviewers? You mm -hmm. could see, oh, this editor sent this IAT paper to Greenwald mm -hmm. Banaji and <laughs> like only the people <laughs> who think that it's still legitimate right. um, and didn't send it to any of the growing number of critics, I think. Uh, so if, if, if it were out in the open, then people might feel obligated to be a little bit more well, that's a good Balanced. point. So that's crucial to understand, right? Is that I think I said this before, but the review process is anonymous. And I think it's almost considered indecent even to say what the reviewer said to you, even though it's anonymous. I don't know if that is a Wait, norm, what do you mean it's indecent to oh, say? Like, like in so the like, paper? 
suppose I get a review and I've had plenty and I've shown them to you, Corey, (laughs) and we've had them too, that are kind of nasty and clearly politically motivated. So let's say I took that review and I published it online and I said, look at what this idiot reviewer said about my paper. Mm -hmm. Even if I were more charitable and I said, here's what the reviewer said is that's almost considered indecorous, right? Like you shouldn't comment about the reviewer publicly. Now, I understand mm-hmm. that norm, but the effect of that is reviewers can be kind of nasty because right. nobody's going to know who they are. Yeah, right? there's like literally no accountability for the reviewer whatsoever. Right. And also, no one knows who they paid. are. The <laughs> so editor's not going to scold them. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're not paid. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that actually gets very quickly to JORBS, the Journal for Open Inquiry mm-hmm. and Data Sciences, because it has been designed um, to address many of these issues, although it can't address all of them. So, but let's back up a little bit. As much as I'm happy to whine and moan about the sorry <laughs> state of peer review, um, there, there, is, there is, I think there's a pretty strong consensus that there's one positive effect of peer review in the sense of people at some arm's length giving you a critical evaluation of your work. And that is most people will say addressing it, even if they're wrong, even if they've misread the paper, addressing those comments almost always improves the paper. The paper is better. Um, You know, I, I did a poll on this several years back on Twitter. And I think, I think the majority of people said it neither improved or uh, like some percentage said it made their paper worse. Some percentage said it made it better, but the majority said it didn't make it better or worse. I would like to see that replicated with like a more, cause who knows who my Twitter followers were at the time. Um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Okay. So maybe there isn't a consensus. On I would, I would say really- it's rare for me not to get like any useful review. In fact, it's probably never right. happened. I probably always right. get a few useful. I think comments. the worry, the complaint, at least my complaint would be sometimes you end up making like a Frankenstein's monster out of your paper <laughs> because you're trying to address like five yeah. different concerns that are almost incongruous. Right. <laughs> so maybe that makes it worse. But in my view, you gotta love the reviewers add, like you need to shorten it and then like add these five hundred. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, but I would say in general, Lee, I, I would say it probably makes papers better on average. Right. Right. Okay. So, so we wanted so in designing this journal, we wanted to keep that, and yet we. Um, wanted to short circuit, preempt the p- whole range of potential biases from distorting the literature as represented in this journal. I mean, we can't, I can't control what goes on at Nature or Journal of Personality and Sociology, anything like that, but we can control it here. And The scientists engage in scholarship because they want to communicate it to, uh, you know, some version of the wider world, whether it's other scholars or more than other scholars or whatever. Um, So this journal will be a vehicle for that sort of scientific communication. And the 
to do this, there will, there's going to be peer review. So we have the first four papers in various stages of the review process now. Um, um, and the entire process is going to be non-anonymous. That is, you know, there's, there's no blind review. You, you know who the paper is, you know who the reviewers are, reviewers know who maybe, you are, you know the... Maybe we should pause there and just say like, what is the benefit of the anonymous? Why did we decide to have that in the first place? And why is it also a good idea to not have it? Yeah, well, so, you know, I think the idea is so that reviewers could feel free to say whatever critical things they have to say about the paper. Whereas if they think the paper is really bad and they say so, they would feel at risk of some sort of retaliation or retribution mm -hmm. or some, something like that. I think, I think mm -hmm. that's, I'll stop that. I, I mean, do, do either of you think there's something else involved? No, that's the sense that I get too, is that it's to prevent the, the retaliation or at least the fear of retaliation. Right. Yeah. Cause right. well, you know, the, or also nepotism, right? Like if I know whose paper I'm reviewing, I can put my name on my review and they can see that I reviewed them favorably. So like return the right. favor. Well, there are two sides of it. So like a lot of journals do double blind review where the reviewers don't know right. the authors and right. vice versa. Yeah, and that true. helps nepotism because if you don't know who the authors are, then I see like, Roy Baumeister or Phil Tetlock or, you know, either a big name or someone I'm friends with right. and write them a favorable review. And then right. the other way is if I'm going to criticize your paper, I don't want to have to make a new enemy every time I criticize a paper. Um, although I was, I was actually thinking to me, that makes more sense when you have a really small community. Now, yeah. like disciplines are so massive. I don't yeah. know if it's as important to well, like, I you, wouldn't even probably know who a lot of my reviewers are. At Joibs, are you making reviews public? Yes. Yep. So that's another okay. innovation, is that the reviews are going to be, are going to function sort of like commentaries, like on a Psych Inquiry article, or mm -hmm. behavioral brain sciences article, um, and they're going to be published. So that, that, there's like a minor issue there that has come up in sort of science reform discussions, and that reviewers get no reward for doing the review. It's just like you're providing a service to the field and you get to put on your Vita that you were a reviewer for such and such journal, which is like big deal. With those like four so, words. <laughs> I know, yeah, it doesn't really do anything. No, nobody's <laughs> ever secured a and job also by reviewing papers. And they're also a huge <laughs> pain in the ass, I should say. Like every time I get yeah. a request, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> right, yes, I know, they're a huge pain in the ass, exactly. So, oh. so this, they'll be published. So you can list them as a publication. I mean, it's commentary style publication, but it's a publication. Mm -hmm. Um, so at least there's some credit that you get for it. Um, but yes. based on the preliminary, first place, we, so we are going to publish, the plan is, so we haven't, you know, we've just barely begun, but the plan is to publish almost anything that's not like absurd or insane. And I literally mean insane. Like, you know, if you've ever seen anything written by a schizophrenic, it's like, this is like really weird, right? So that's a very low bar. So mm -hmm. even as editor, I might handle- should point out that it's also empirical only. So it has yes, to report all, new data. Right, that, and that should help handle the insane thing. Cause it's like, yeah. well, I collected data and here are the results of the right. data. There's a certain level of seriousness involved in collecting data yeah. usually. So, 
Um, and, and so the, uh, the, the idea is that most of the, you know, the, the, this, this journal as a vehicle for scientists communicating with other scientists or the wider public about their work means that the thing should get published even if I don't think it's a very good paper. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have to think it's a good paper. As, as the action editor, uh, if there is a paper, let's say, where I think its main claims aren't justified by the data, I will also write a commentary that says, okay, they did these three studies and they're claiming this, but I don't, I don't think it's justified. Here's why I don't think it's justified. And I would still publish it. I would still publish it because it's not really my place. I don't see it as my place to curate for the world other people's work. You know, I can raise red flags about it and now let everybody else decide what they want to do with it. So that's, right. that's the idea. Importantly, and, and, the, the review, so like, let's suppose that I write an atrocious paper, but it's competent. You get it. You notice all of these flaws in it. You send it to reviewers. Importantly, when my paper is published, there will be your comment and then reviewers public. That's right. Saying, like, that's look right. at, here are all these problems. So somebody right. can go to those immediately. And also, right. As you said, the reviewer gets some credit here. Like it's actually, you could write something that somebody else might cite. Like, hey, right. here's a review that makes really good points. I'm gonna cite that as right. well. That's right, mm -hmm. that's right. And, and I think the other part of it is the creating some accountability for the reviewer. So yeah. there, yes. what I say is going to be public. I can't be a jerk. <laughs> I can't cite illegitimate yes. concerns. Um, I can't be blatantly biased in the direction of my own preferred conclusions. Um, so to me, I see that as really useful. Um, also, because the reviewers now, I feel like my editors are usually kind of reasonable, but reviewers sometimes really, really, yeah. really aren't. Yeah. Yeah, this has some hope. I mean, it's very early. I, I don't want to make, I'm not making a prediction. It's more of a hope. This has some hope of elevating the quality, quality of scientific discourse around mm -hmm. you know, the issues in this, in this journal, actually, because of the accountability, because people will, you know, we have disconnected um, the outcome from the review, right? The reviews are not going to influence whether the thing gets published or not. So that should undercut the whole motivation for retaliation. I mean, yeah. it still would be annoying for somebody to really deeply critique your paper, sure, especially if, right. but, but, but on the other hand, if they do and you think they're unjustified, I mean, you're gonna have a chance to respond. In, in the journal, you can have a chance to respond to that. You know, you can either revise the paper, you can respond in a separate letter, you can do all those things, or you could just say, this is so ridiculous, I'm not gonna deal with it. It's gonna be up to the authors how they wanna handle that sort of thing. So they're, they're, my point is, that there is still some chance of people's egos being bruised by a negative mm -hmm. review, but there's not as much hinging on it as there is in a conventional journal. You know, I'm actually more convinced that this is a good idea because you think about what you get with the commentaries with like Psych Inquiry or BBS. Um, mm -hmm. People are perfectly critical, I think, in those. Um, they don't seem... I, they don't seem particularly concerned about burning bridges and having been on the receiving end of that twice. Uh, also, I feel like 
I don't have hard feelings toward critics at all. I mean, if they yeah. say something really rude, then maybe, but if they're just critical and they say like, I completely disagree with you. Right. I don't think I that really hilarious. Yeah. Sometimes the rude <laughs> stuff's pretty funny. Uh, but so, but I think part of the reason the commentaries are often critical, but professional is precisely because they're published. And so right. you get to say, what you think is wrong with it, but you're forced to say it in a professional and respectful way. We, and we all know what happens to, I mean, if you look at a chat room with anonymous <laughs> people, yeah, we, we right. know what happens to it within minutes. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just people splashing feces on the wall. I mean, it's primitive and horrific. So I, I like well, this idea. Were you guys influenced by any chance by, there was, I think it was Nozick who wrote an article like Utopia of Science or Scientific Utopia in which he forwarded some ideas including, because I remember I wrote this paper called The Roger Ebert of Scientific Reviews. <laughs> <laughs> and basically my argument was, wouldn't it be great if your reviews were public so you could actually become a respected scientific yeah. reviewer and that would be like something you were known for like hey right. i'm the gene siskel of scientific reviews <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know you know i have read that scientific utopia paper um but i don't know if it's from that I, you know i went to sips the society for the improvement of psych science for a couple of years before they went full woke um, and since they've gone full woke, I really haven't gone. Right. Um, but there were, you know, these like small uh, these hackathons and unconferences and like discussions about designing a new journal. And that did influence how I think about the journals and how, you know, and how to go about it. And then there really is kind of a backstory. The, the Joibs is going to be hosted on the researchers one website. And Researchers One is already doing a lot of this. So this was organized by a guy in the Rutgers Stat Department and some colleague, I, you know, I don't know whether the other guy's a stat guy or not. Um, and it's a web hosting, it's sort of like an archive, it, but people post papers, they can be reviewed, some, some are reviewed, some aren't. It's not a full journal, but it is a vehicle for scientific communication, actually. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so they, so one, they, they have some experience with this already. They will post anything, like you can, you know, you, and, and they were worried that they would get a lot of garbage or racist or sexist stuff, and that just hasn't happened. In fact, the last time I was on it, which was a day or two ago, it was all like Bayesian models of certain kinds of decision-making and some <laughs> hairy stat things and stuff. So they just didn't get the trash science that they were worried about. So that made me feel more optimistic that we also will be unlikely to get that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and it just seems to be working reasonably well as far as they go. Now, they're not a full journal in the same way that we are. They're not ensuring peer review. They're not going to publish the peer reviews. They don't have an acceptance process. You just upload the paper. Uh, but, it's, but it's two thirds, three quarters of the way towards what we're going to try to do with this new journal. Yeah, I mean, that's really the biggest concern, right, is that because basically the bar is you have to collect some data and you have to report some analyses uh, that you'll get. I mean, actually, this is just occurring to me right now. What if somebody submits a study 
that does like a two by two with 12 participants like <laughs> well does that so get published <laughs> it does uh, yeah with like three, a three two by two with, meaning with, there with are three. four conditions and there are three people, <laughs> three people you can literally it. like what if they go to their like family and they just have their siblings and their parents <laughs> fill out a survey and then they send it into joy you look at a jpsp yeah. from 1980 and that's but we're trying to be better <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I would probably just reject something if, I, if it really just yes. had a sliver of data like that. Right. I don't know what the, you know, a, what is the threshold? You know, if they had 12 per condition, I would probably not just reject it, you know? So, and I would just say, look, this is still a tiny study and should be treated yeah. as massively preliminary and no one should take yeah. anything here seriously until there's a high-powered replication. Nonetheless, if they did it otherwise reasonably well, maybe this is interesting. Yeah, you know, I actually, I like, I like that I, I ran this one study with my students um, at Durham, and I think we only managed to get like 37 participants, maybe even less than that, 27. But the results were kind of interesting, and I was like, this could never get published anywhere, but at minimum, someone could use this and say, hey, I'm going to replicate this method with right. 300 people, or right. I'm going to use this as an estimate of one effect size in my huge meta-analysis. And those That's kinds right. of studies now get laughed <laughs> out of journals, and it's not like they're right. useless, they're just not that right. good. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Why shouldn't like preliminary stuff get published? I just I have no right. reason why it shouldn't. I mean, it needs to be flagged as preliminary and no. You know, part of it is, I I really think there's this this psychology of interpretation of things published that is common. It, it, I don't know how common it is, but I suspect it's pretty common. That if it's published, it's a fact. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah. so, you know, that's the psychology. <laughs> Hashtag so, science. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> you, you've now established the fact, which is yeah. just ridiculous. As we know from the, I mean, we should have known before the replication crisis that just yeah. because something's published, that doesn't make it. But certainly post-replication crisis, the fact that something's published does not make it a fact. So once you accept that, it's easier to become more open to studies mm -hmm. with high levels of uncertainty surrounding it. Yeah. Because it's a question of degree, right? I mean, it's, so yeah, it's just a that, question of degree. That seems to be part of the motivation, perhaps only part of the motivation of um, like progressive activists to attempt to get articles that were published in like 1990 retracted. Mm -hmm. Right. E even if they admit that there wasn't data fraud. Right. And, and the idea, I guess, is, well, if it remains in the published literature, somehow it has the imprimatur of science right. and it's oh, therefore right. like has right. this kind of prestige. But right. as all of us who work in science understand, there are plenty of science papers that have been published that are not correct. Right. Right. Possibly right. most papers yeah. that have been published. Almost certainly most, right? I, I've actually wondered that because you'll see some people push for like getting rid of certain papers because whatever reason, sometimes it's moral, but sometimes it's it's moral, but also this is just wrong and everyone knows it's wrong. But we haven't gone back and retracted all of the papers that failed to replicate. We haven't gone back and retracted all the papers. We haven't even gone back and retracted the ones where we're like, we're pretty sure this was p-hacked, like right. hard. <laughs> um, and so it seems like there just needs to be more tolerance for getting things wrong and let, letting that be part of the record of, okay, we thought yeah. this for a minute or we never were sure of it, but we thought it was possible. Um, 
and and it seems like we've lost a little bit of our tolerance for um, the process of getting it right and not actually being right. But would we agree yeah. abstractly that the challenge is finding the sweet spot between some kind yeah. of curation and complete, let's call it populism, where you just, oh, <laughs> I, I have an idea, here it goes. <laughs> yeah, make, make social, make social Literally anyone can publish Right, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking, because you can see the danger of like, oh, well, I'm just going to write my mega friendly findings and boom, publish it. And there we go. <laughs> right. And then yeah. people who want to will cite that. So there's like this sort of conflict between, okay, well, we need some form of regulation, but yeah. we don't want so much that, you know, a few people who have their own agendas can squash right. various ideas. I, you know, I really you know, my, my, my general sort of sociological slash philosophical approach to all this is, is Rauschen, Jonathan Rauschen, mm -hmm. you know, yes. and that is that, that nobody has final say and nobody should have final say mm -hmm. and that it's an end, it figuring out what is actually true and what isn't is an endless series of discussions and negotiations about what is actually true. Mm -hmm. And it's just that there is no end and there's no final point and there's no one and there is no one who should be gatekeeping what enters into that discussion. So so that has informed how, uh, you know, how we've built this journal. Uh, you know, and so, does make an argument against the, the, the image of the, the marketplace of ideas because he says it's more regulated than that. So I kind of mm -hmm. I like that idea that it's not it's not complete anarchy in other words. Right. Yeah, I, you know, anarchy. I mean, I'm not sure what anarchy would look like, but I don't I don't know either. It's a yeah, cool yeah. Name, Twitter. <laughs> well, actually, no, not Twitter after Twitter, Elon Musk takes over. Yeah, there, there we go. <laughs> the meltdown, the leftist meltdown on Elon Elon Musk taking over Twitter is just this is like, it's just, just too much fun to watch. It's just like completely absurd. You, you might be surprised to hear that both Bo and I are a little worried about, <laughs> about oh, really? Twitter maybe getting worse. That's a whole long discussion. That's another I, discussion. I would need to lay the groundwork for it so Lee doesn't tear me up immediately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, there, there was actually a really good, I don't know if I saved it, thread by like the former, some former exec at Reddit mm. on Is Reddit, Elon. Reddit used to not be that moderated, but it is That's now. That's right, it is yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that was really what a lot of this thread was about. He was basically saying Musk doesn't know what he's getting himself into. Right. That mm. was part of it. And then- He probably doesn't. Of, I bet it's he probably a lot hard yeah. to anticipate. Yeah, yeah, but but oh, but he's but he's. <laughs> if you think about what Musk has done, he does things that are hard to anticipate. You know what I mean? So if there was ever a person who could jump into something that he doesn't really understand and possibly get it right, it would be somebody like him. I mean, who thought? Who, Fifteen years ago, who thought there would be a private company sending satellites into orbit around yes, the Earth? It's this incredible. was like it's incredible. It is completely incredible. And the, the Tesla is an, an incredible automobile also. And if you go back five, six, seven years, it was like he's never going to make it profitable. 
Yeah. And he's made and it somehow wrong. he managed like, yeah, a luxury brand, not the hippie dippy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna put this on the record. I obviously I could be wrong about this, but if I had to super forecast, okay. I would say that <laughs> it would be just Twitter, a forecast until you reach that's true. the that's level true of I super that I'm super about it. <laughs> exactly. I would <laughs> guess that it won't change that much because Twitter is so constrained by various incentives that there's not actually a lot of freedom there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Actually, I, that that is my best guess. Also, I mean, because you can imagine the moment that like incels start promoting stuff on there, and somebody gets shot, like you just <laughs> so much heat will come at you, and it will actually hurt the profit, and you you don't want that. Right. So, I, I guess not much will change. Maybe Trump will be reinstated or something, and you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I bet what you would you would probably try some experimental small things and then see how yeah. they go. And if they go well, then you keep doing them. And if they go poorly, then you back it up. Yeah. But yeah. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, but uh, Lee, how can people find the journal if they have uh, papers well, they can't publish elsewhere? <laughs> <laughs> High quality papers. <laughs> I'm very happy to uh, take uh, papers that they can't publish elsewhere. Um, uh, uh, and in fact, one of the things, um, I realize I'm not answering your question yet, but one of the things we hope to do um, after we get our feet well grounded in the process of making this happen um, is have a special issue where we publish previously retracted papers. Mm. Um, previously retracted papers that were retracted without having identified data fraud or massive data error. Mm -hmm. You know, if, that, that's, if it's retracted because they've identified fraud, we're not gonna touch that with a hole. But there are a mm -hmm. slew of papers out there. Uh, you know, one would be Bruce Gillies, The Case for Colonialism, um, yes. which re retracted under death threats and stuff. And right. an, I, Was know, that I one empirical though? Yeah, but uh, you know what? No, it's not, but for, a special uh, issue. For, for, for a special, special issue. issue. Yeah, for a special issue, I would, I would mm -hmm. waive that requirement. Um, <laughs> so, so, the problem is with a lot really of these papers, the pressure doesn't have the, um, the pressure doesn't necessarily cause the journal to retract it. It causes the author to retract it. And then they might be hesitant to publish yeah, the paper point. again like because the they retracted paper. it. <laughs> yeah, they retracted yeah. it. Yes. For, I'm sure they all have different reasons, but. But, yeah. but anyway, the, we'll the journal can be, there's a new society, the Society for Open Inquiry in the Behavioral Sciences. So if you just Google that, it comes right up, the Society for Open Inquiry in the Behavioral Sciences. But they have a the very unfortunate the acronym, SOIBS, SOIBS.com. <laughs> I know. I, or is it SOIBS.org? As you know, Corey, I fought not quite tooth and nail to get us to change the name to have a different acronym. And we went around for like two or three months and we just never found anything better. And eventually a lot of people spent a lot of time brainstorming. It doesn't names. sound and very And we came up with nothing better than right. soybeans. Yeah. I, I think know. I had proposed O-Pink, which is even less <laughs> That masculine. sounds even worse. <laughs> O-Pink. <laughs> I got rejected. Um, yeah, so yeah. open. So just go to, a, yeah, just. Yeah, there's a journal page on the, uh, on the, the society's page and, uh, with contact information and how to submit and all that sort of stuff. So. You know, one thing I thought like a potential concern is 
you know, there's a little bit of a war happening in our field. Um, there are these people who maybe would self-identify as like pro-open inquiry, pro-academic freedom people who would be called by the other side, like far right extreme <laughs> uh, uh, academics. And then the people who would maybe be, they would say they're for like responsible science or something. And the people on the other side would call them like the woke. But there's a battle between these people in like what the norms should be and like what should be published. Um, and I could imagine that a journal like this getting labeled, you know, like a far right journal or something, even though that right. has nothing to do with the at least explicitly stated mission, of course, but um, getting labeled that way and then being pretty much ignored when it comes to citing papers, um, which of course is bad for the journal's impact factor. But beyond that, I was actually thinking one potential benefit is that I think people couldn't ignore it when they're doing meta-analyses because it's out there and it's published. Yeah. And if they're gonna do a meta-analysis on X and the papers out there, then they kind of will be obligated to include it. Yeah. Um, but maybe it won't get ignored altogether. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, most new things, especially in academia, get ignored. You know, I mean, there are rare exceptions, but, but they're rare. And I, I'm not expecting, I'm expecting this to have sort of a slow rollout and a slow, you know, a slow snowball effect, you know, as people hear more about it, as they see that the first few papers that we publish in it are like reasonable papers. They're not like some weird, you know, kind of thing. Um, and, and, and then we'll have to see, you know, like researchers won the, the host of our site that also, you know, functions kind of like an archive has been around for, I don't know, four or five years now. And you know, when they first launched it, no one really heard of it except like their friends and a few people outside that. And now it's, I believe it's hosting three journals, you know? So, but that's taken four or five years. So things just take time. It's like, I just, you know, I, 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 like I want it to be a good version of what it is, which is a vehicle for scientists to communicate, especially with other academics, but really with, with anybody, because it is going to be open, it's going to be open to the public, about their work. That's what it is. And it, you know, I'm, yeah, I've been studying this political bias stuff for long enough. I mean, good stuff gets ignored all the time. I, I just, you know, I, one of my favorite, one of the, my favorite comments on your Psych Inc. Equalitarian paper was from Calvin Lie which was what, what normal claims require normal evidence. So, you know, so this, I mean, extraordinary claims re require extraordinary evidence. It right? might have been unextraordinary claims require unextraordinary Yeah, right, there was something like that. Right? Calvin and, and is a idea, friend of mine and he came on Cyphalopod, but yeah. Oh, his, did he really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His yeah. title stung yeah. a little. <laughs> yeah, well, well, right, so, so, but one of the things that I'm just so amused, you know, one of his arguments in his commentary on your paper we said, well, you know, if you cherry pick a paper or two, you can make it look like there's bias. And here, I'm gonna purposely cherry pick something. And here, mm -hmm. look, it looks like you have the opposite bias. Okay, so the reason I find that completely amusing 
is because in my commentary with my paper with Nate um, uh, on your paper, we did a we attempted to gather every paper we could find that addressed gender bias and peer review. And then, so there, there's no cherry picking here. This is, this is normal evidence. This is not like, you know, right? But it is everything. It's not like a sampling of the literature. I mean, we may have missed something. That's always possible. But our intention, our effort was to get everything that addressed gender bias and peer review. And we showed that the Moss, Rokusin, Williams, and CC pattern holds up across the entire body of work. That is, if um, if a paper finds bias against women in peer review, mm -hmm. it is massively cited more highly than a paper finding gender bias against men in peer review or egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And the other feature of the, of the Williams and Cece versus Moss Rekusen comparison also held. So, the, so for those who are not, may not be familiar, Moss Rekusen and a whole slew of colleagues published this paper, I think it's 2012, showing gender bias in evaluations uh, for a lab manager position, mm -hmm. uh, such that people, all things being equal, people preferred somebody with a male name for the lab manager position. So Williams and Cece come along uh, a few years later, and they do it basically with hiring, faculty hiring, and they find a fairly substantial bias in favor of women. And they, and they did it with, you know, they did it with like five or six times the sample size. They had multiple studies, whereas most Rakusin had a single study. Um, and it's, to me, it's like a much stronger um, set of studies than the most Rakusin uh, um, uh, uh, experiment. Okay, and, and yet even though Williams and CC by most common metrics of research quality, sample size, number of replica uh, replications, methodological variety, um, is a stronger paper than Moss Rakusin. It's cited at like one tenth the rate of the mm -hmm. Moss Rakusin paper. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the pattern that held up when we did this. That is, even the studies show finding biases against men or egalitarianism have like five times the sample size as to the studies finding gender bias against women. And yet the studies finding gender bias against women are, are cited like five to 10 times more frequently. And it's like, this is a field filled with myth. It is just a field filled with myth. <laughs> and that's, so that's not peer review. You know, we started this by peer review and bias and peer review. This is after the whole peer review. This, these papers are all published. So you have this system which creates a literature that creates the impression that there is massive bias against women in peer review because whatever, 10 times as many papers are citing studies showing gender bias against women that are right. providing a full set of the, you know, of the review that, well, sometimes there is bias against women, but sometimes there's bias against men and sometimes it's egalitarian and it's really, it's sort of an unclear picture, right? There's like 10 times as many just saying gender bias against women. So that, that means if you look at the, um, the, the, the sort of population of academic papers that address this issue, something like 90% of them are gonna emphasize uh, gender bias against women. That is how political biases operate. 
not so much by corrupting peer review, maybe somewhat, mm -hmm. a maybe a right. little bit, but this other thing is much more powerful, in my opinion. I think there's evidence for it. Yeah, I'm trying to look at that now in a couple of different ways to look at differences in citations, but I think the key thing is really like targeting the particular biases that liberals have, and a big one is yeah. they really like evidence of discrimination against women, and they really don't like evidence of discrimination against men. Um, right. And I would say, if I had to guess, if someone really did a genuinely comprehensive meta-analysis in the world, biases tend to favor women over men. Um, but you wouldn't get that impression from looking through a lot of social psychology journals anyway. Um, and we'll get cited. Yeah, I don't know what I think about that. I, I there was just a paper that it's coming out in JPSP looking at implicit bias, looking at a variety of kinds of implicit biases. And I think the biggest one, and this is just on the IAT, I believe. Um, and the, like the most consistent one they find is people have like a pro-female bias. Um, yeah. And that's all Alice Eagley's work. Um, yeah. People just like the ladies. We're pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Not, there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> or maybe there is i don't know it's worth uh, this smash, smash the matriarchy it's time to smash the matriarchy <laughs> um well anything else we want to hit before we head out I think we covered a lot of ground. That was I'm going to refrain because I could have like a two hour conversation about other biases, <laughs> but <I'll... laughs> well, you just have to have yeah. me back around in three or four months. Exactly. Have a few other yeah. And, and then I'll just come back and we'll do it again. Yeah. And we can just discuss how this experiment is going with the journal. I'll yes. be very yeah. interested to see. Yeah. So I, well, yep. well, thanks for, thanks for coming on Lee. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. I will.